Go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer, and we'll begin tonight with the central truth that every Christ follower must must know. So let's uh, let's pray together, and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for this evening we were able to share together in fellowship. We thank you for the meal that we had, Lord, and the fellowship around the table. We just pray as we look into your word and we think about how you have revealed yourself to us through your word. Uh, we do pray, God, that we would honor uh, the, the scriptures. We would honor what we, have, uh, what we have learned and we will put what we have learned into practice. Father, we do pray for those who have been circulating on our prayer list, those who need prayer, those who've lost loved ones. We lift them to you, Lord, and we just pray that your hand would be upon them, and God, that you would receive worship uh, in all areas of their life as well as ours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. All right. So uh, tonight I'm going to, I've got a couple of things I want to uh, talk to you about. Um, one of the things I want to talk to you about, I don't know if you are familiar with what is called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. This was written in 1978 uh, during the height of what they call theological liberalism when there was an attempt to undermine the authority of God's Word. Uh, this meant that if, if they were to read something like the account of, let's say, Adam and Eve, they would say, well, this is all myth, or that Jonah was a historical, um, historical figure. They would say, no, that, uh, that Jonah was mythical. And so there's more to it on the side of liberalism than that, but a group of, of conservatives got together. R.C. Sproul was on this committee, and they drafted out what is called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Now, I'm not going to go through all of it, but I do have a copy of that up here if anyone would like to read this. Or you can look on Dallas Theological Seminary in their archives, and you can find that there too. So it, it goes all the way to Article of about 12, about 20 articles in it. And so, like I said, I'm not going to go through all that, but it just kind of gives you a sense historically where we have come as a church, uh, because it was what I consider a dark era of church history where liberalism kind of ruled the day in Southern Baptist life. And great, I'm grateful to the Lord for rescuing us from that and bringing us back to a conservative, what they call a conservative resurgence. And so I'm grateful for that. So what I want to do tonight is talk about the next, the next movement in the essential truths that every Christian ought to, ought to know or ought to hold to, and that is the inerrancy of Scripture. So you can kind of see we've been moving, uh, we've been moving kind of counterclockwise, starting with general revelation, creation, natural law. We talked about special revelation, God's word. And really, from God's word, this ought to have spiderweb from this into inspiration of Scripture and then moving into inerrancy of Scripture. And Brother Thomas next week is going to talk about the authority of Scripture, um, Lord willing, uh, unless the Lord returns. Uh, he's going to talk to you next week about the authority of Scripture. Uh, and so tonight I want to talk about inerrancy and what that means. And so... Uh, it is the meaning of the word inerrancy is in the word itself. Uh, so what does inerrancy mean? It's in the word itself. Without error. Uh, in, in particular to scripture. So have you ever heard anybody say that the Bible has con contradictions in it? The Bible is contradictory. The, some of the stories don't line up. Um, Numbers might be off here and there. Uh, so I want to talk to you about that tonight and how we can have a defense against somebody who might say that the Bible contains errors um, or discrepancies. And by the way, um, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and that the original autographs, when God breathed 
when God breathed into these authors and they wrote, that is what we essentially are referring to when we're referring to inerrancy of Scripture, that in the original autographs, God, His Word is absolutely true and without error. Now, as we move through history, we have copies of that. What is the problem with an autograph? Let's say, what is the problem with a, an original document from the Apostle Paul? Time. I mean, you just can't keep an original document because of time. And so you have to preserve what is written, and you do that by manuscripts. And I mentioned this last week. Let me go up a couple. Um, I mentioned this last week. There we go. And this is a bit dated. Uh, 5,856 manuscripts from the New Testament alone. There's actually close to 10,000 different manuscripts of the New Testament in existence. And so, so you move from your autographs, which is the autograph from the original author. We don't have those anymore. And so you have manuscripts, over 10,000, that you can go back and you can say, well, this manuscript lines with this manuscript, this one with this one. And from the manuscripts, we have the transmission of that word through the Bibles that we handle and hold. So we could say that God is in his, in his providence and in his power and in his wisdom. He can preserve exactly what he wants in the Bible that you hold in your lap. In the Bible that you hold, God can give us exactly what he wants to say. And it is, it is his word and it is theologically precise for every area of our life. And so I want to talk to you tonight about inerrancy of Scripture and hopefully answer a few of the questions concerning uh, contradictions or things that we might consider to be variants in the Bible. And does the variant take away from the truth? Does the variant take away from what the actual message is trying to portray? All right, so inerrancy of Scripture. Inerrancy refers to the belief that Scripture is completely truthful, without a mixture of error, in all its teachings, no matter what subject it addresses. So just right off, maybe off the top of your head, uh, besides the Bible being, as people would say, having contradictions what might be another issue with scripture that people bring up when you're talking about the bible yeah that yeah that is uh if you look at the 1963 baptist faith and message it says exactly what that says that it is a record of god's word and uh, so, so now we've changed that. But that is what you call neo-Orthodox belief. That comes from Karl Barth and that, that train of thought there. But uh, to, that it contains uh, the, the message or a record and it is not truly inspired or breathed by God. And so, yeah, we certainly don't hold, hold to that. Um, what else might come to mind? And we talked a little bit about this last week. Human authors, human authors are flawed. So how can a human author write authoritatively and without error and represent God Almighty? And so hopefully we'll be able to help, help, uh, help one another through that train of thought tonight. All right, so we'll come back to that statement. Inerrancy refers to the belief that Scripture is completely truthful without mixture of error in all its teaching. So that's important. It's teaching, no matter what subject it addresses. So just right off the top of your head, you can think of some subjects that the Bible talks about marriage. It talks about love. Uh, it, the Bible addresses sin and brokenness. It talks about the reason that there is suffering and evil in the world. Uh, it does speak about, about those things. So in all areas and all subjects, the Bible touches in some way, if not explicitly, implicitly. The Bible tells you how to be a good steward. And so that affects how you spend your money, how you store up treasures, or however that might look. So the Bible will address every in every area of life. 
Uh, as you can imagine, there are people that would say that there are other books that should have been in the Bible, and we'll talk about that as we make our way around that special revelation cycle. Inerrancy of Scripture, it is essential. Uh, here's a question. Is it essential for a Christian to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Is it, is it essential that a person who calls himself a follower of Jesus hold to inerrancy of Scripture that the Bible is without error? Can a believer hold that there's errors in the Bible? It's a level of maturity, yeah. And we kind of touched on this last week, too, when we were talking about inspiration of Scripture. Because if a believer is indwelt by the Spirit of God, there are certain things that, that are affirmed in their life. Like a person cannot be a Christian. They cannot be a follower of Jesus and say that there are other ways for a person to be saved other than Jesus. It's just, you just can't. You can't live in that way. I think the same way, maybe in a different way, but in the same, in the same light applies to inerrancy of Scripture and also inspiration of Scripture, that because God's Spirit is indwelt you as a believer, uh, that you might not be mature and you might not have every, have every eye dotted in T cross but as you walk with the Lord you will come to know you will come to believe that God's Bible the God's word is without is, is without error as the spirit is living and dwelling in you but I think it is it is essential and I think Richard is right there's a level of maturity that comes with that okay I just want to make sure that as we're working through these essential beliefs that every Christian must or ought to believe, I, th I want to make sure that we are on track with that. I don't know if I would go that far as to say. Right. Yeah. I think it's up to the, it's kind of, yeah, the walking, you know, their walk with the Lord. And, and you can almost apply the same thing to a person who has professed Christ but they're not living it out. Let's say they were genuinely they were genuinely saved or regenerate, and they're not living their life right, you know. But what point what point do they walk before the Lord? You know, call them back or call them home? If we believe that a person is sealed, you know, in their faith, you know, and that they are truly born again, what point do they walk where we would say, well, they're not generally saved or you know the Lord would take them home and I think I mean I can't answer that 100% to know but I think again there is a level of maturity that comes with you know yeah yeah And it, and it might also be that you are genuinely seeking and want to investigate. Is this, is this God's word and is it without error? I think there will be a sense of exploration in that, wanting, wanting it to line up and finding you know, that this is absolutely 
without error. And, and when we say without error, what I'm referring to is essentially it is inerrant in, in its message and inerrant in pointing you to theological and biblical precision. And I'll show you what I mean by that here in a moment. Okay, so the doctrine of authority and inerrancy of Scripture is that as a corollary of the inspiration of Scripture, we talked about last week, God breathed. So the God breathed Scripture are wholly true in all things that they assert in the original autographs as they were given, as they were given to the authors in their original state. So we talk about God's word being uh, without error and inerrant. We are essentially tracing it back to the source, the primary source, the autographs, and therefore function within the authority of God's own words. Okay, so we hold that it is wholly true in the things that they assert. So if the Bible speaks, you know, that here's it's a sin for a person to... Um, you know, it's sinful for a person to be involved in strong drink and get drunk. Well, that's God's word, isn't it? Uh, if, you know, there are certain things in God's word that, that they're pointed out, and that's, you know, in authoritarian fashion. And so it's wholly true in the things that it brings to surface. Okay. All right, so the underlying question to the doctrine of inerrancy is, are the scriptures perfectly reliable? And that really what lies at the heart of it. Is it important for a, church, for a Christ follower to believe in inerrancy of scripture? And we might follow this question with, reliable for what? What are the scriptures reliable for? Or reliable to? And how would you answer that? If you were to ascribe some scripture to that, where would you go? And now I know, I, I know that there would be inevitably somebody who would say, well, using the Bible to prove the Bible is kind of circular reasoning. But, I mean, we're all followers of Christ here, so I think we can concede the point. You know, we, it is God's word. So where would we go in scripture? What is God's word reliable for? Or reliable to? What is the purpose? And there's. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there it is for teaching, reproof. This is, this is what we're moving towards, as Paul is saying. What is it reliable for? It is for teaching. For reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So, and I wonder to myself, why are there variables, variants in the Bible, like population, uh, things like that, that you might see differ over transmission and translations that you have? And I, know I might be stepping out on a limb here when I say this, but there might be variants throughout translations to keep people from idolizing are almost worshiping the Bible. And there are groups of people who almost worship the Bible. And uh, there are certain groups who would say that you could only read one translation of the Bible. And if you do, that you are a heretic or you're, you're committing blasphemy. But I have seen people come to know the Lord using the English Standard Version of the Bible. I've seen people come to know the Lord Jesus with the NIV. Are you saying that because we read out of the English Standard Version that that person's conversion is not genuine? And so I believe that some, in some way that adding, that having these variants over the ages really does keep people from putting the Bible as an idol. Have you ever been to a church and all you hear preached was that you should, I'm going to just go ahead and say it, that you should read the King James Version of the Bible? And that becomes their gospel message. That becomes their message preaching the King James Version of the Bible and how you should read it versus Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. 
Now, I'm not saying that that's why there are variations and variables as far as they're not, they're not errors, but population and geographical places change over time. And as people discover newer or older uh, manuscripts closer to the events, the interpretation and the a translation becomes a bit, a bit different than what it, did, what it used to. So, for instance, one of the things that the King James says, um, which, by the way, I like the King James. If you read King James, that's fine. I have nothing against the King James except for one thing. Um, one thing in the King James Version mentioned in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, Matthew, um, let's see. Matthew 28. So... As you know, these are what they call the Great Commission passages in the end of Matthew chapter 28. So let me read this to you in the King James Version. All right, the King James says in verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them... To observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Great passage, beautiful passage that Jesus has given us a commission. He's told us to go. And the command is not to go, by the way. The command is to make disciples. But do you see that in the King James? The issue I have with the King James is in verse 19. So the English Standard Version there reads, Go therefore and make disciples. Is it different? Is there a difference between teaching and making disciples? I can come to you and just give you a lesson, just give you a lecture, you know, without asking you questions. I can just give you a bunch of information without any application. Now, if I have taught anything and say, now, what are you going to do with that and walk with you through that? That's different than just teaching and making disciples is multifaceted. So that's the issue that I have with the King James, at least in that verse. It's just telling you now some people would say teaching and making disciples are synonymous. And that's that's not necessarily true, because what you find in some places where the King James Bible is the only Bible, and they say you can't read anything else, is all the missionaries do is go, they lead a lesson, they see if anybody wants to raise their hand, accept the Lord, and then they leave and goes to the next town. Unlike Paul, unlike Peter, unlike the disciples we see in Acts who stay in that area and work with them and teach them and show them how to walk with the Lord. And so there is a difference. Uh, there is a difference there between making disciples and um, of just simply teaching. Like I said, I have I don't really have issue with the King James. I read the King James. I don't preach through it uh, or using it to text anymore. But so this, what Paul is writing to uh, in Second Timothy here is is teaching. It's in the sense of teaching, reproof, and all the things that follow from teaching. What is it good for? What is what is the end? Uh, that question again. Uh, reliable for what? So all these things you see from teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. In other words, making disciples. In other words, making disciples. Training in righteousness. Okay? All right, so that is the question to what end. The doctrine of authority and inerrancy Scripture is rooted in the doctrine of God. And so if we are saying that the Bible is inerrant, I mean, is not inerrant, then we have an issue with the character of God. What is the doctrine of God? We would call that in theology, theologic theology proper, the understanding and the nature of God. Who is God? God created the world. How did he create the world? What did God create? God created man. What did God, how did God create man? And so the character and nature of God in the doctrine of God. So inerrancy of scripture is rooted in the character and nature of God. As God is true and trustworthy, 
so is his word recorded now using that word loosely in the original autographs of scripture okay there's that word recorded don't let that trip you up as we talked about that earlier it is it is recorded perfectly in the original autographs of scripture from the original authors okay we talked about the uniqueness of the bible last week so we won't dive into um, much of that today but continuing that statement this means that all things that the scripture assert are wholly true both in the old testament scripture uh, the scriptures of jesus and the apostles and in the new testament and the writings of the apostle where might we go to find the affirmation of the old testament where might we go Jesus himself. Mm, go ahead. <laughs> so we don't need to try to articulate that the Old Testament is canon of Scripture. Jesus did that. Uh, it is perfect in its, in, in its form. Now we have a different translation. We have a different version of the Old Testament. Uh, but in the, old, in the Hebrew it's collected just the way that Jesus quotes it here. So he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. So this is on the, the Emmaus Road. Now, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the Torah, and the prophets, the Psalms must be uh, fulfilled. So the law, the prophets, and the Psalms are the writings. And if you would open a Hebrew Bible, that's exactly how it is. Now, our, our English Bibles contain Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy and then from Joshua on and then there's the prophets you know and they're, and they're ordered a little different but in the Hebrew Bible it is ordered exactly the way that Jesus quoted it here you've got a selection of the law you have a selection of the prophet, uh, prophets and writings and, 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 and uh, psalms and writings and, and proverbs so they're exactly how Jesus says so we don't need to try to do any digging to affirm that the Old Testament is exactly how it has been preserved for us through the ages. In 1978, a significant find uh, in Israel. Anybody know what that was? In the Qumran Caves. Dead Sea Scrolls. Examining the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was 99.9% .9 of the Dead Sea Scrolls were consistent with what we have and hold. And the other... Um, that was missing out of that 99.9% .9 was uh, areas that were indiscernible or hard to read or translate. That let us know that even in 1970, uh, 1947, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls showed us that God has preserved his word exactly how he wants it preserved through the ages. So that's the Old Testament. But how about the New Testament? All right, so far as the original autographs have been faithfully copied, translated, and passed down, Scripture is inerrant even in its copies. Okay, that is a hard pill for some people to swallow. Um, I, hear, I was hearing some folks talk about their Sunday school lesson a couple weeks back, particularly on Jarius. You remember that lesson? Sunday school and some discrepancies that may have come up. So what do you do with those? What do you do with something that might be a discrepancy in, in the Bible? Is it actually an error in the, even in, the, in its copies? Is there, is there something that we need to know as we're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the gospel accounts? Um, and so how, how do we handle that? How do you answer it? When somebody says there's discrepancies in the gospel accounts, Seems like John is saying something different than Matthew or Luke. How do you answer that? Or do you answer it? And by the way, there are people talk about this um, synoptic problem, and there's no synoptic problem. Each author is coming from a different angle. They're projecting Jesus in a different light. And they're giving their account. 
Um, and so it doesn't mean that there's discrepancies. They are, they are writing either to a predominantly Jewish audience or they might be writing to some Gentiles mixed in. Uh, regardless, they are approaching it from a different um, authority as far as they're painting Christ in a different in a different fashion in each one. So for like for instance, you might find Mark as servant, even in John, servant Jesus, the deity of Christ, his divinity from the prologue on. So each author is coming from a different angle. Doesn't mean that those are contradictory one to another. And by the way, what if what if every what if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all said the same thing? What would happen then? Say it's plagiarism, yeah. Yes, they see they're copying one another. And so, so we would say even in, in, even in inerrancy of Scripture that the copies are trustworthy. The Bible that you have in your hand, unless it's the cotton patch Bible, <laughs> is, um, is trustworthy. So it goes back again, you know, to, to translation as trustworthiness. A person can come to know the Lord Jesus through the... I'm sure it has come to know the Lord through the message, which is not a translation. And they may have come to the Lord, like I said, ESV or New American Standard Version, the Revised or anything that will depict the gospel of Jesus. A person can hear that, and the Holy Spirit can can bring them alive. And however that happens is another topic for another day. All right. So why is it important to believe in biblical inerrancy? Why is it important? As I mentioned earlier, believing in that the Bible is without error and is theologically precise, if you have an issue with that, then you have an issue with the character of God himself. Okay, that God cannot preserve an accurate, an accurate message. And that really is what the heart is what at, is what at the heart of it. So, uh, about seven years ago, Lifeway. So you know, I like some I like statistics here and there. Lifeway um, did a survey about seven years ago on the Bible and theological views of of the Bible. And the question was: Is about how many believe that the God is the author? If the Bible was written. For each person to interpret on their own, or is the Bible does it have the authority to tell us what to do? Now, in America, that is a hard pill to swallow. So here's what they found. All right, they agree, disagree, or not sure. All right. So the overall picture was uh, that the biblical accounts of Jesus' bodily resurrection are are accurate. Sixty-four percent agree with that. 64%. Now that's a high number. Um, if this is American theological views. Because how many denominations are in existence in just Western culture in America? There's thousands of different denominations. And I mean, even amongst Baptists, there's free will Baptists, there's Reformed Baptists, there's um, Independent Baptist, Southern Baptist, and then there's offshoots of those. So there's primitive Baptists. So, I mean, you have you know all different offshoots just of, of people who call themselves Baptists. You got the Methodist, you got the U Baptist. I mean, the Methodist, um, the USA version. You got Presbyterian, same thing, split there. And then you got the conservative version of the Methodist Church now. So, sixty-four percent agree that the Bible gives an accurate account of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So that's reassuring. I would like to, to see their audience. Um, the Bible is 100% accurate. 47% agree, which is higher than what I would expect in, Amer in the American view. And then the Bible is helpful, but not literally true. And I think these last ones really do pour into that last statistic down there on the bottom that says the Bible has the authority to tell us what to do. And 50% believe that, 42% do not, 8% are unsure. And really that, 
I'm surprised at that statistic uh, because I thought that that would actually be um, a lot lower than 50%. Yes. Yeah, well, that's really all I could find from that particular um, article. But it says the Bible was written for each person to interpret as he or she chooses. So what's the problem with that? Doesn't the Bible talk about that? <laughs> that scripture is not for each individual interpretation, a private personal interpretation. And why is that? Because the Bible interprets itself. Through the word, through the word study, through the, through the chapter, through the verse, that we, we're able to have those things today, chapter and verses. So yeah, um, I mean, I agree that everybody is an interpreter of the, of the word. But I don't think that you get to just say, okay, I'm going to isolate this verse and I'm going to make it say what I want it to say. Okay, so I guess maybe in a way they should have maybe rephrased that. Because everybody in here, when you read the Bible, you are an interpreter. I don't mean it's all right. But. And then that God is the author of Scripture. 58% believe that. which is higher than what I would think. 31% disagree. Again, this was uh, about seven years ago when this art, this, these statistics came out. I have a few more I want to share with you here in a moment. But out of 1,000 young adults who have left the church, now this is from, uh, I think this is from the Gospel Coalition. It says, out of 1,000 young adults who have left the church, 44% of them say that they did not believe the accounts in the Bible were true or accurate. Out of 1,000, 44%. When they were asked what made them answer this way, the most common response, 24%, said that the Bible was written by men, not God, albeit inspiring men. So there is the, I hear this a lot, that is written by men. And as I mentioned last week, it actually helps the case of, Bible, of biblical truth and inerrancy and inspiration that God actually used the human authors to portray a picture from Genesis to Revelation that points to Jesus through and through. Charles Spurgeon said something very similar to that. If you drop anywhere in the Bible, you will find yourself at the cross. More or less what Spurgeon said. Anywhere you drop in the Bible, you find yourself at the cross of Christ. And so all these authors come together, 44 different authors coming together and writing the same message from Genesis to Revelation. We are sinful, broken, we're not the hero of the story, and we need salvation. God provided salvation through Jesus. And so I think the human authors actually help make the case for inspiration and inerrancy. Okay, so look at this next one. Um, I don't know if you could read that. So this is kind of what I just posted out of the thousand. This actually comes from Answers in Genesis. So you go around the, the graph there, you'll see 4% Christians don't live by the Bible. So this would be this statistic here out of 1,000 adults. Okay, why did, why did you walk away from the church? And they would say, well, because Christians don't live by the Bible. 4%. If you go around, there's so much suffering in the world, and that's not only just out of the 1,000. That is like the number one reason why people would consider themselves non-believers or atheists is the suffering in the world. And then 11% would say that the Bible has errors in it, which is kind of what we're talking about tonight, inerrancy. And so I would want people to flesh that out a little bit. What errors? Have you ever asked anybody? The Bible has errors, and you say, well, what errors? And I don't know, but there's some in there. <laughs> I don't know, but there's some in there.
Yeah. Yeah. That's right. You know, to to respond to that, I would say, I would, well, let's look at those errors, error, uh, errors in the Bible, and and it's not. I mean, I think it is a good thing to say. Um, let's look at these errors together, and let's investigate them together. Show, I mean, that shows that you're concerned, that you care, and that you really want to get to the heart of it. Um, last week, I got a call from my Jehovah's Witness friend. And um, he answered the phone, and I was right in the middle of something. And uh, we, we got into a good, a good conversation, I think. And, and I said, you know what? Um, I gave him some scripture to read about when Jesus, um, whenever the uh, Pharisees and scribes, when Jesus said that before, uh, before Abraham was I am, who clearly was showing himself to be God, or would say that um, the Father and I are one. And the Greek usage of that is, he wasn't saying that they are like, hey, buddies, that they are in good relationship. And the sense of the Greek is that they are one in the same essence. I mean, they, they knew what Jesus was saying, that he was God. So I gave him that scripture. I said, why don't you read that scripture and call me back and we'll talk about that one. So I think he thumbed through it and looked at it real quick. And he's like, oh, okay. So investigation, one, with a person who says there's errors in the Bible, and you would say something to the effect of, you know what, let's, let's look at that together. Let's come back to it. They'll either be a seeker and say, you know what, let's, I, I want to do that. Or their motives will show very quickly, nah, that's okay. And so I think it's good. It's I think that kind of dismantles it a bit and kind of lets them know you're not a prideful person and that you're willing to walk through and investigate the errors. And some people don't, some people don't want you to answer their objections because they're fine living that way because if they are happy in their one little niche place of unbelief and they don't want to investigate anymore, they're happy staying right there. All right, 24% said it was written by men. That's out of that thousand, and that the, the Bible contradicts itself. So again, I would want to know where does the Bible contradict itself? And let's look at it together. You don't drop into a novel halfway through the book and expect to get the context and everything. So why would you do that with the Bible? Why would you open up and what we call lucky dipping? And we did that a few weeks back. Why would you do that with the Bible if you don't do that with any other book you read? Like, for instance, if you sign up for a Western Civilization class, I don't know if they even teach that anymore. You don't jump to the back of the book. When you're learning a lesson, you go from ancient civilization and work your way up to modern Western Civilization and you work your way. Why would you do that in a history class and then not expect to do that with God's Word? Reading it as a whole. So I think investigation with a person who has the objections is good and, and can be fruitful. Uh, why is it important to believe in biblical inerrancy? So this is from gotquestions.com. I don't know if you've ever heard of this website. This is um, kind of like a ligonier in a way, maybe not as reformed. But uh, So here's a little clip that answers a few of those. It's about six minutes long. And so the question is, you know what? I don't even have this on. We'll find out very quickly if this is going to come on. If not, we'll go right to the next thing. And I'm thinking not. In this video, I'll answer that question from a biblical perspective. Okay, either way. I'll get this set up. We'll watch it next week. Okay, so I'm going to share a bit from that actual video. We'll come back to it where I can get the sound. I, I'm not going to run up there and do it. Uh, but this is essentially what, what he talks about in this video. So number one, uh, why is it important to believe in biblical inerrancy? Well, uh, number one, the Bible itself claims to be perfect. So there again... 
talking about the character and nature of God. That God can and will and has preserved his word exactly the way that we have it and hold it and read it and study it and apply it to our life. Secondly, the Bible stands or falls as a whole. So we just talked about that. The Bible stands or falls as a whole from Genesis to Revelation. You can't just say, I just want to read the New Testament like Andy Stanley did. And that the Old Testament is obsolete like Andy Stanley did. No. You read it as a whole. That the Old Testament is just as important as the New. It's God's Word too. Okay? So it stands or falls as a whole. The Bible is a reflection of its author, its character, God. And if, it's, and if God is trustworthy and true, so is his word. The Bible judges us, not vice versa. We don't judge it. So if there's a problem with interpretation, it's not God's word, it's with us. The problem is not with the Bible, it's with our understanding or our failure to interpret it correctly. The Bible's message must be taken as a whole. Again, you see these arrows pointing back as a corollary. Uh, five and two go together. Three and one go together as the author being perfect. The Bible message must be taken as a whole. As from five to two, it stands or falls as a whole. And then lastly, the Bible is our only rule for faith and practice. The Bible judges us, not vice versa. It is the Bible. The Pope isn't the be-all, end-all. The pastor isn't the be-all, end-all. Your deacons aren't the be-all, end-all. Those are not your rule of faith. It is, it is the Scripture. And so that's why it's important to hold to inerrancy. All right, so finishing up that whole statement, uh, finishing up that last little bit, so I'll read it as a whole, and then we'll talk about this very last thing here. Believing the scripture to be inerrant does not preclude the biblical author's inclusion of observation from a human observer. So this again would be where they use, God uses their personality and their personality pours through their writing. God is still using them and their personalities, he's using them in that way, but he's also getting exactly what he wants to say in the autographs in its purest form. The use of round numbers, unusual grammatical constructions, or varying perspectives on a particular event. So this is where your gospel accounts would come in. A varying perspective on particular events. How many women, how many women came to the tomb of Jesus? Was it a multitude? Was it one? Was it two? I mean, how many women came? So there might be different perspectives of that. Was it early in the morning? Was it 3 a.m. in the morning? Was it 6 a.m. in the morning? Depending on how the perspective of the author. But it does mean, however, that Scripture is an infallible guide to salvation and that it is truthful in all that it affirms. So I've got that underlined. It's an infallible guide to salvation. And so one of the things we're not really going to talk about is infallibility. And this not in our rotation in, in the infallible word of God. We'll touch on that next week just a bit. But again, it is the perfect guide to salvation. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God and some translations through the word of Christ. And so it's how we come to know Jesus. It's how we come to know the Lord. Okay, again, so leaving, leaving inerrancy, and again, there's a lot that can be said. Um, Chicago's statement of biblical inerrancy, and I think in some regard, there are, they, these things are helpful in church history to have documents like this. Again, our primary document is God's Word, but it's good sometimes to lay down the gauntlet by things that this is what we believe, this is what we hold to. That's why it's so important for a church to have, you know, a, a document somewhere on the things that they believe, even if it is a bullet point, the things that they believe and things that they hold to. It is amazing to me how many churches don't have a statement of faith at all. Some of that comes from this preconceived notion that a, if, if a church does that, 
then they are somehow um, you know, participating in writing a creed. You ever been to a church that said, no creed but Christ, no creed but God's word? Well, guess what that is? It's a creed. They might not have it in written form, but it's still some type of statement of faith, a statement, I believe, a creed of, of faith for that particular local congregation. And so I think it is important that we have uh, our beliefs written down, our vision written down, uh, things that we hold to, distinctives as Piney Grove people, you know, who are Southern Baptists. All right. So that is in a very short, condensed, very condensed version of inerrancy of Scripture. That God's Word is without error in that regard and is reliable 100% for theological precision and that can lead sinners to salvation by hearing it. Okay, so think about that question that I asked earlier and we kind of touched on it and I don't know if we really even landed the plane um, try to get back to it remember the question yeah so we're talking about essential doctrines is, is inerrancy is it essential for a Christian to believe in the inerrancy of scripture will they eventually if they're regenerate will they eventually come to the understanding that God's word is without error. So think about that. Okay. So let me see. What I say next week, Brother Thomas will be talking about the authority of Scripture. Here's a map. Here's a map of where we're um, where we where we're working towards. So we're working on the authority of Scripture. Uh, we're talking of the clarity of Scripture, then the illumination of Scripture, then probably one of my favorites is the preser uh, preservation of Scripture. How did we come to get the Bible that we have today? Historically, how did you get your Bible in your hand? How can you go to the, the bookstore or online Amazon and order a copy of God's Word. How did it get? How did it get there? Beside Crossway or whatever manufacturing it. What's the history? So we're going to look at some of that history when we wrap around to God. God preserving His His Word. 